they all went to All Souls College, Oxford, and so the members of the Cecil Rhodes Society. They formed together the new group, which they called the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Their own historian, uh, there was Professor Carol Quigley, who was given access to all their, their histories and documents, said that they had so much to do with the history of over a hundred years for the whole world that it was time their name was recognized. They had helped foment wars from the very beginning to get a new world society underway, beginning with South Africa and the Jameson Raid. I'm going to go into some of the descendants of these same people and what they're doing today after this break.
and Cecil Rhodes uh, left his will to Lord Rothschilds, who was a member, of course, of the group. Cecil Rhodes, in fact, was sent all over Africa for his part in uh, trying to take over from the Boers. They created the Boer War, in fact, as I say. They blamed it on the Boers by creating a raid, uh, the Jameson Raid it was called, and they even had their own reporter for, for, uh, uh, for London who wrote back uh, in factual stories saying that the Boers had attacked British settlements when it was the other way around. Uh, the Jameson boys, the Cecil Rhodes boys, had actually gone in and started killing off Boers. Then the British government got involved, saying, well, we've got an excuse to go in now, and we must protect the settlers. In they went and took over, created Rhodesia, and took over the South Africa. That's how they start wars, always by intrigue. But, see, Lord Rothschild was in it on this from the beginning. Why not? Because, you see... The Rothschilds had already been running the affairs of Britain since they'd taken over uh, the Bank of England. They also had uh, other brothers taking over the central banks of other countries at the same time. That's incredible planning and a massive organization outside of the family, obviously, to protect them and enable to come into being. And I've often said it's, it's completely not just unusual but it's impossible for the average father to have sons continuously generation to generation where they don't deviate from some particular same, the same role down through history. And when you see how active Rothschilds were, and not only in taking over the central banks of countries, the organization, as I say, and obviously a big organization behind them to allow it to happen and protect them, then you can see that there's something else behind this. They already had a plan, obviously, for not just taking over Europe and its financial system, but taking over a world and a world system. Because see, economists deal with populations and history. They're the ones who have records and archives of histories of peoples going back into ancient times, how civilizations rise and fall and they always make sure, of course, that with projected populations to pay off debt and all that, they have to know, even through census, what the breeding rate is, how many children will be in the future to pay off debts, etc., etc., etc. They're always involved in the same agenda. So they never deviate and say, oh, oh Daddy, I want to go off and be an engineer or something. No, they always end up in the banking. And not only in the banking, but heavily involved in politics. Remember... The International Monetary Fund that comes into countries when you're bankrupt and directs your policies. Its main job is to make sure that you pay back the private bankers, the Rothschilds being one of them, that lent you the money in the first place. That's their main job. So they have an affair in politics, a big hand to play in politics. Now they're going, of course, for the world, and we know that the Club of Rome and all the other offsprings, all these lesser organizations that sprung off as specialized departments, but they're all still specialized departments of the same one organization that, that was in the open, as I say, under Cecil Rhodes, Lord Milner, and then the Royal Institute for International Affairs, CFR. They're all specialized branches. And it's only natural as they come into a post-industrial society 
even post-technological, that they create a system to take over from that. And it must be a system that is a substitute for war, because only in a warfare scenario do they give up all our rights. You see? That's what the Club of Rome decided. And they came up with the idea that global, global warming would fit the bill. That's what they said in their own book, The First Global Revolution. That was back in 1970s, they came up with that idea. But out of it, too, was to come a new, a new economy, to take over from the, the gone economy, the, the, the industrial economy, the manufacturing economy. So lo and behold, what do we have today? We have, out comes Mr. Rothschild again. He's been coming out for years. They're busy taking over the world's resources, as they always have been. They're taking over the vast farmlands of, of India right now. It's beyond national television. Resources, you see. That's how you control people. But a few days ago, I gave a link to George Hunt, who attends environment meetings, the big ones, where Maurice Strong and even Rothschild has spoken. And you can hear Rothschild for yourself, still involved in this new system of grabbing balloons of, of not fictional carbon taxes or, or carbon to trade to each other for this new economy, you see, that's going to reduce everyone on the planet to serfdom. That's the idea of it. It's going to make sure, it's actually going to come out, come out and tell you eventually that you can't have any children at all unless you're specially authorized, authorized stock, of course. That's all going to come out of this under the guise of saving the world. And you need to pay for everything you buy and uh, ten hundred times over for all the supposed carbon that went into making that particular item. It's slavery. We must get used to using our own judgments and not, not grabbing the media's perceptions that they trade off to us. Don't take the media perception. That's already pre-made. It's a, it's a one-suit-fits-all idea. You've got to come to it by your own sensibilities and study. Here's an article about Mr. Rothschild, and it's from the Telegraph, the 31st of January 2008. Now, going back to George Hunt, I think it was made in the 1990s, early, early 90s, we see Rothschild there on the video. I'll put up that link again, by the way, on cuttingthroughthematrix.com. You'll hear Rothschild talking about the need to set up an eco-bank to, to trade and all this carbon, etc., back in the 90s. And, of course, the one he suggested was it would come through his own private bank in Switzerland. You know how much money they'd make overnight with billions, maybe and billions and billions going through that bank per night? You know how much they'd make personally? But here he is involved in the politics of it all, too, because he must bring it into being. And remember, going back to Cecil Rhodes' day, here's the grandfather, the great-grandfather Rothschild, helping to start off a British Empire system that they said would be the nucleus for a world government. That's what you saw with the European Union, the North American Union, the Pacific Rim, the Royal Institute for International Affairs set up each department for this integration. Getting back to the Telegraph, the 31st of January 2008, Simon Linnett, Executive Vice Chairman of Rothschild, has called for a new international body called the World Environment Agency to regulate carbon trading. In a recently published paper called Trading Emissions for the Social Market Foundation, another foundation, you see, 
Mr Linnett argues that the international problem of climate change demands an international solution. Now he's speaking, remember, on behalf of his boss, Rothschild. Unless governments cede some of their sovereignty to a new world body, he says, a global carbon trading scheme cannot be enforced and regulated. So there's the threat, you see. And now these are from your international bankers who run the IMF. Unless governments cede some of their sovereignty to a new world body, he says, a global carbon trading scheme cannot be enforced and regulated. Do you think your governments really matter? Governments are a tool. That's all of these bankers, these foundation people. Back with more after this break. I am Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix, reading an article to do with Rothschilds pushing for his, to make sure that his descendants will be running the world again for the next 100 or 200 years under the, the carbon tax scam and saving the environment. But why not? They've pulled incredible cons before to run the world for hundreds of years. This is just the latest one. And it's not just the Rothschilds, there's a coterie of them. And there's lots of them, in fact, descendants of them and other family names and so on, all throughout the aristocracy and then through governments with titles and barons and lordships and sirs. And this article, as it says, from the Telegraph, on the page you'll also find the full paper link to the full paper Social Market Foundation, it's called. Underneath it, it says, an urgent global response. This was how Nicholas Stern described the problem of carbon dioxide emissions in his recent review of the economics of climate change. They're calling it that now they're on global warming since that kind of fell flat. It's been cooling for years. The sense of an impending crisis infuses our all debates on this issue. And it's true. You see, they have their, their committees, their appointed committees. You don't elect them on every parliamentary uh, seats or a bench in, in every country. You see, they're appointed to them. You also have your your, your uh, panels now, inter-party panels appointed to every Congress and Parliament to make sure this goes through. And as I say, why not? Why, why, why shouldn't these guys control the world for another couple of hundred years and direct it into their perfect utopia and now that they can start culling us off they don't need us to manufacture anymore. They don't need us to go off and fight all the wars they'd planned. They're almost finished with the wars. Now the war is against the general population of the whole planet. Overpopulation, they claim, which is nonsense. But what they really mean is the useless eaters. You see, economists don't believe in keeping pets around. And that's where we are now. We're just pets, spoiled pets, supposedly. They're eating all the resources and using the resources that their families, you know, the elite's families, those who have evolved more, it's for those families to survive in the future. And here we are, we're not producing anymore, we're just a, a, a basically patting things around in a service economy and, and using up all their resources that their great-grandchildren should be using one day for themselves. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Slavery is slavery, and you know, if you go into Charles Galton Darwin's 
book, The Grandson of Charles Darwin. It's called The Next Million Years, a massive boast of culling off the useless eaters again and how the elite should come through and how the, the, the servant class should be basically lobotomized to make them obedient and not too bright. Well, he said himself that the, the ruling body who are guiding the world, they're the captains of the ship, they won't have lobotomies or, or anything done to their bodies to make them stupid because you must retain your survival capabilities to run the ship called planet Earth. Arrogance, incredible arrogance, but not just arrogance. They have the power, financial and organization-wise, to do so. And they have been doing it, by the way. Incredible. But they, this article here is from the big man himself, who uh, is going to obviously be in charge of the World Environment Agency. At least all the money for the world and carbon trading will go through his family bank in Switzerland. Isn't that a nice little arrangement? Democracy is wonderful, isn't it? And that's all it is, you see. Governments are just a tool for the real government, the unelected one, to use. Because they use law, and then they force us by law to go along with it. Well, it's the law. You breathed ten breaths more than usual today because you were jogging. We've got to tax you on that, slave. And Charles Galton Darwin said, there's always been slavery in one form or another. Right? True enough, right through the feudal system, into the 1800s in some parts of Britain, you had serfs, serfdom. That's a slave. You're bought and sold with the land. Then they gave us a thing called democracy, where we're allowed to work for this odd thing called money. And it's much better, you see. It's more, it's more um, efficient to have the slave buy his own clothes, buy his own food, pay for his own rent and so on accommodation. Rather than have to, all these guys going around throwing rags at you. More efficient. And that's, well, that's what he said. Charles Gordon Darwin says, there's always been slavery in one form or another, and we are in the process, this is in the 1950s, we are in the process now of creating a more sophisticated slavery. You couldn't get much more sophisticated than carbon trading, carbon taxes. It's very sophisticated. It, it, it's so out of it that the average mind can't get round it. That's why they picked this idea, because no one can prove nor disprove it. Beautiful. The swine flu pandemic, my God, there's one crisis after another. And we've heard so much rubbish about the swine flu since the media hyped it all up out of all proportion. I've read so many articles that have gone against all uh, the reporting of it, including the fact that Scotland was reporting everybody with a sniffle as having swine flu. And many countries were actually reporting by phone only and being put down on numbers. And many of the folk who said they might have had it had the mildest, what they thought might have been a head cold for a day or two. But not, you never get this impression if you read the media. Because again, it's a must-be scenario to get the whole world stampeding into accepting inoculations, which I don't truly believe have anything to do with what they say. I'll be back with more on this topic after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
pediatrics talking about the swine flu now and how they're hyping this out of all proportion and how they're using fudged and fake numbers to justify a pandemic and all the rest of it and how we all must suddenly get into action and accept three shots they want to give everyone three shots the the common flu one of the common flu mixes which is a triple mix actually and then couple it with the swine flu which is the last thing you'd want to do because you become the breeder as it mixes in your body like a test tube and produces the inevitable eventually out of the population someone will have an odd set of genes that'll make it the killer flu so that's that's what they want to do is make us the breeders and get it going right now it's, it's nothing it's a mild thing that comes and goes the very elderly, etc., who've died with it so far, were already dying with other complications. The babies and so on that they're using, they tell you months afterwards that they're born three months premature and probably wouldn't have lived anyway. This is how they fudge the figures, by omission. Because they want to create panic and they want compliance. In fact, if you read the articles given to doctors and nurses right now through all the hospitals, uh, they give them courses in the, the magazines on how to gain compliance of the general public. Not just the approval and cooperation, but compliance. That's a must be. And this article here is from the Mail Online, 30th of June 2009. The swine flu pandemic may have been caused, this is quite a story, may have been caused by an accidental leak from a laboratory three decades ago scientists have claimed. An investigation into the genetic makeup of flu viruses claims that the pandemic may not have occurred had it not been for the accidental release of the same strain of influenza virus from a research laboratory in 1977. This is the latest story to cover up the fact it was recently released. What they found, I'm interjecting here, but what they found was that the, the this supposed strain of, of the virus, the swine flu, is, has the swine itself, the pig part of the gene makeup of it, is from a Eurasian pig. It's not from a South American pig. It's not from Mexico. So here they come out with a quick cover story, like this one. It says, the Independent reported that researchers believed the strain of the virus had been extinct in the human population for more than 20 years until it was unwittingly reintroduced by scientists. The study in the New England Journal of Medicine said, careful study of the genetic origin of the 1977 virus showed that it was closely related to a 1950 strain, but dissimilar to influenza A, H1N1, strains from both 47 and 1957. The findings suggested that the 1977 outbreak strain has been preserved since 1950. Boy, if you're not getting confused, you will be by the time you finish it. The reemergence was prob probably, not me and probably, an accidental release from a laboratory source. The strain is thought to be behind the pandemic in 1977, which began in Russia and China. So that's the latest nonsense about it. What I've heard, though, if you get the, the swine flu, the first symptoms is your nose gets kind of runny and blocked. Then you start sort of grunting, you know, like a pig. And then you have an insatiable desire to run off into the forest and dig for truffles. That's the only sure way you'll know you've got it. And here's from the BBC, Thursday, 2nd of July, 2009. Listen to this one. See, they can't get the figures to justify what they're, what they're pushing right now. 
swine flu cannot be contained. <sighs> oh my goodness. Now they've been sending school children home and everybody else home with supposedly the flu rather than quarantine them. Now what would you expect? This is, it normally would spread to the rest of the family and neighbours and all the rest of it. That's how, how seriously they've been treating it up till now. They've been sending everyone home or trying to stay at home and have a couple of days rest. So now that after doing all this for months now, they're saying swine flu cannot be contained. They've never tried to contain it. It says, Andy Burnham, we could see over 100,000 cases per day by the end of August, he says. The rising numbers of swine flu cases means trying to contain the virus is no longer an option, the government says. Ministers, that's politicians, say the emergency response would now move to a new treatment phase across the UK as there may soon be 100,000 new cases a day. I love how the, the crystal balls are amazing, aren't they? It means anti-flu drugs will no longer be given to the close contacts of those infected while they haven't been doing it so far. Nor will lab testing be done to confirm cases. You understand everybody with a sniffle who phones the doctor will be put down as having the swine flu. That's what they want, or hay fever. The move has been made to relieve the pressure on the health service so they're not going to even give them nasal tests or anything else or swab tests. The announcement which comes into effect immediately has long been expected. It does not mean the pandemic virus is becoming more deadly, just that it can no longer be contained. Who tried to contain it? When people are displaying symptoms, they should contact the National Health Service by phone, the government said. I love how they say the government. It's like the God, you know. If doctors believe the person is suffering from swine flu, they will be told to stay at home and be given a voucher which a friend or family member can take to a drug collection point such as a pharmacy. Although the GPs will have the discretion not to prescribe antiviral drugs. Some experts, you know that the experts again, the age of expert rule, believe the drugs should just be targeted at the most vulnerable as the virus is quite mild and, and overuse can lead to resistance. So in other words, the virus is intelligent. It's, it's kind of gone into its own little war. Ah, there's antiviral drugs out there let's mutate and, and become invincible. I guess that's evolution in practice, eh? But that's the, the rubbish we're fed all the time. This article here is from, it's from, it's, it's from the Telegraph, I think. Or, yeah. I'll put the links up at the end of the show, as I say, anyway. Yes, from the Telegraph. 3rd of July, 2009. And it's a scare article, probably a handout, to get you used to being scared, really. That's what cameras are also up for, traffic lights and so on, to, to put fear into you. You're being watched. It's also to make you nervous so that you can't relax or really feel free. It's training you not to be free. Big Brother is watching the technologies that keep track of you. Closed-circuit television, RFID tags, and GPS-enabled phones are among the technologies that can be used to keep track of your movements. It says, it says the furor around the Chinese government's Green Dam software has raised the issue of the way modern technology is used to monitor our daily lives. Here are seven of the technologies that can be used to keep track of your movements. And then they list them all. Closed-circuit television cameras were first used in Germany in 1942 to remotely monitor the launch of V-2 rockets. Since then, 
they become one of the most contentious pieces of technology in public use. The government and law enforcement agencies claim the use of video monitoring technology can help reduce crime and improve public safety, even though they disclose at the end of every year that, that crime's gone up and, and the cameras haven't helped at all. Critics argue that cameras serve only to displace crime to unmonitored areas and do not act as a deterrent. With more than 4 million CCTV units in the UK, the network of cameras captures the average person around 25 times per day. <clears throat> RFID tags. Radio frequency identification chips are already widely used in supermarkets and shops for the purpose of stock control, but some people fear their use could be widened to monitor the habits and behavior of ordinary citizens. Well, of course, they've been using it for that for a long time. At the moment, these tags, which are little, little bigger than a grain of sand, are embedded into pints of milk and library books. When paired with an RFID reader, the tags can help provide detailed information about items, such as their location or how many there are. Although most people are happy, most people are happy for RFID tags to be used in stores to monitor stock levels, they're less happy about the idea of the chip still sending out a signal once they leave the shop. On a benign level, such tracking capabilities would mean a store would know that people in Hertfordshire prefer blue cashmere jumpers, while those in Aberdeen favour the brown versions. But on a more sinister level, it could also enable them to glean an unprecedented insight into our personal lives and target their brands to us accordingly. To those people who fear a surveillance culture, like we, sh we shouldn't, should we all be are normal people the ones who don't fear a surveillance culture? To those people who fear a surveillance culture, the ability to tag and track everything from our food to our clothes would be the next step on an already slippery slope. Then they go through telecoms technology and various other things that are used now and coming in in the future. It's just astonishing, really. It goes through the email monitoring software and all the organizations that are watching everything you do. For this brave new world, as I say, we were going to be reduced to utter slavery. Now, many people try to be good in every age. They obey all the laws, and as the laws get, get wickeder and, and nastier, they keep bowing down lower and lower, saying, I'm good, I'm good, I follow all the social rules, and they hope to be left alone. Well, no one in this new world order that's been implemented now is going to be left alone, ever. So get used to the reality of it. Hunkering down and being good is not going to save you. That's not the intention. Years ago, years and years ago, I read articles in newspapers in Canada, the States, and in Britain, all the same articles. It was amazing to travel the world and see the same laws being introduced across the planet at the same time, but never mentioning the fact that it was international laws. Every country thought it was their own governments just putting these laws through, all coming from the United Nations and from the IMF and the big money boys. But many articles were written as far back as the 70s about all the pensions that had been set up, pension funds and unemployment insurance, and how, how as soon as the money went into government, it was used on other purposes. And that one day there'd be a, a there'd be a day of reckoning. But I knew at the time, I said, you know, they've given one generation, really one generation, that's all, really, a pension that they could start to almost live on, especially in the European countries. And I could realize 
I realised by the reports coming out from economists and that it was not intended ever to keep it going in, in subsequent populations and, and generations. So how are they getting around all the, the payoffs since they, they spent it? The government's always spending things in other other by the way too I mentioned the value added tax the other day in Canada they called it the GST general sales tax because it was voted out as the BAT so they brought it back as general sales tax and Brian Monroney who was the who was the, the big pusher at that time the Prime Minister said it would be spent and go towards if a penny would go towards paying off the national debt when he left office he was asked the question uh, have we paid off the national debt he said not one penny of it went to the national debt well it's the same with your pensions you see so now they're finding ways not to pay you. How do you do that? Well, you've got to be, you've got to read things like this, or see the movie The Sting, stuff like that, to see how the mindset of these people really works at the top. This is from the BBC, 2nd of July, 2009. Pension view not radical enough by Lord Turner, who wants to raise the pensionable age to 70, knowing that most folk you see will die before they hit 70. The guys will, you see. They know this. The author of an influential report into the future of pensions now believes that his proposals were not radical enough. Lord Turner told the BBC he would now argue that the age at which people receive a state pension should be raised more quickly. Now, this will happen across the whole Commonwealth. Canada will get it. The states always follow Britain as well, so that will be there shortly. He also suggested public sector workers should move to more flexible pensions rather than a final salary scheme. This Commission's proposals four years ago moulded government pensions policy. The age at which people start to receive the state pension is getting later in the coming decades, close to the recommendations made by Lord Turner's Pensions Commission. People can still retire. Now, here you, here you go. People can still retire at a younger age, but will not be paid a state pension until they reach the pension age, 70. So, so you're going to retire at 60 and what, starve till you're 70? The state pension age for men and women will rise to 66 in 2000. Even though it worked out, but you know it's going to be a lot sooner than what they give you here. This is floating the trial balloon to get used to the idea. Will rise to 66 in 2024, to 67 in 2034, and 68 in 2044. Each rise will be phased in over two years. Lord Turner told the BBC that these were arguments made during his review that the pension age go up to 70 years of age by as early as 2030. They'll bring it in before the next 10 years are out. He says, if I were doing my report, redoing it, I would be more radical, arguing for an even faster increase in the state pension age, he said. Do you realize the British politicians and the House of Lords just vote themselves when the largest pay increases and and uh, cost of living pensions ever in the British history. But here they are, living off the, the sweat of others, as always, as slapping all the ones below that pay all of their big fat pensions. So a number of other recommendations from the Commission became pension policy and law. They include the view that increases in the state pension age should be linked to rising life expectancy. Ha, 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 we're all dying of cancers. Because of the food treatment that's laced with massive killer pesticide. But the state, state pension should be linked to average wages and not prices. And an introduction of a personal accounts for those without access to company schemes. The economic downturn has brought the health of company and public sector pension schemes into sharp focus. 
with debt deficits mounting, a number of household name companies have closed their final salary schemes, not only to new members, but also to existing members. So what did they do? Well, you just hit the masses again and say, tough luck. But if you can make it till you're 70, you, you might get a year or two of getting some of the money back that you paid in and that the government invested elsewhere or used for other purposes or, or voted for their own pay increases at the top. That's the reality of the world we live in. And it's amazing what we take, isn't it? I mean, isn't it really amazing, amazing what we take? It's true what they say, you know, the people's backs will be to the wall and they'll be starving, but they'll never ever, because of the incredible micromanagement of their minds through media and television, entertainment, this strange surrealistic milieu where fact is, is mixed with fiction, horror mixed with laughter. They're out of the picture. They're, they're like punch-drunk zombies. They'll never stand up and say, we've had enough of your utter corruption for too long. From the article here, it's interesting to see how they're going to really push, because Monsanto's been getting hit with a lot of bad publicity. So they're bringing on board one of the biggest players, family players, international, uh, long-time family players, the Dole family. Monsanto's bringing them on board. And the Doles, of course, are heavily involved with CIA, always have been. Back with more after this break. Cutting through the matrix. Uh, reading another article about the GMO food industry. And Monsanto is teaming up with another giant, you see. And the headline here is Monsanto and Dole team up to force feed consumers genetically engineered fruits and veggies. That's the title from the Organic Consumers Association. It says here that, once I scroll down to it, Team up to post for consumers, you know, engineer fruits and veggies. Uh, Dole and Monsanto enter an innovation agreement by Eric Schroeder. It's also in the Food Business News, June the 23rd, 2009. That's got the whole, uh, the link to the whole story straight to the source on the site, so you can go and get the whole story. Monterey, California, Dole Fresh Vegetables, also have the massive fruit industry that they sell stuff abroad to in cans, incorporated in Monsanto Co., have entered, entered into an agreement to develop new products that will enhance consumer vegetable choices, according to the companies. The five-year agreement will focus on, so going after all the other stuff, not just the grain now, broccoli, cauliflower, lettuce, spinach, and the other ones too. Any new products developed through the agreement will be commercialized by Dole in North America. Plant breeding techniques will be used to improve the nutrition, flavor, color, texture, taste, and aroma of the vegetables. Monsanto's role in the collaboration will be to improve, that means GMO, the development of new and beneficial vegetable characteristics. Their effort will be guided by Dole's knowledge of consumer needs and marketing. As I say, go into the Dole family, because you see there that they're also big players. You see, it's not just banking you're into, it's everything that humans need to live on. And Dole, they went out for, to take over the world's resources, remember. That includes food supplies as well. 
You look into the big names, the Heinzes and so on, they've been taking over the world's food supplies. That's what they were doing. And the Dole family have been in and out of politics and the CIA for generations. Big players, not just owners of resources, human resources that you need to live. That's how it really is run. Now, I think there's a caller there. It says P.D. Monsanto, Philly. Is there someone there? How you doing today, Alan? Great show. Yeah. I just want to be brief. I I didn't want to come come too late because I always miss that damn music. (laughs) Yeah. I just want to... just commend you again, you know, God, it's been a while since I called, and just for taking us deep down the rabbit hole. I see a cartoon of you just coming out of a rabbit hole and somebody looking down, you know, yeah. indicating like, wow, it's too deep. Yeah. But um, there's something you said on another show that uh, really took me by surprise, and I looked into it a little bit, but I, and I could see how it could be, but I just want, was wondering if you could maybe direct one toward a place where we could see what you saw. Uh, Bristow and, and Zundel. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, that was in a Toronto Sun, and uh, Grant Bristow's brother, uh, uh, brother-in-law came out, uh, sold the story to the Toronto Sun and the Toronto Star, and exposed Grant Bristow as the right-hand man of Aaron Zundel, uh, who supplied money to Zundel. Even the skinheads were, were suspicious of, of this guy, uh, Bristow. Okay. Uh, because he had all this money and equipment for debugging, which was obviously was bugging Zundel's office. And then it broke out. And he said yes. And he also was employed by Canadian Security Intelligence Service, the Secret Intelligence Service. That's breakthrough information. The whole he was thing also a Jew. He attended the, the synagogue in Toronto. And after the story broke, they, um, they moved him. They found him in, the papers found him in Alberta. The government bought him a brand new house, uh, a nice big van and SUV and so on. And then now he's back in the role. Uh, hunting down supposedly uh, anti-semitics but he's employed by the Canadian government he also handed out all the private numbers of top Jewish people in Toronto gave them to the skinhead to get a harassment campaign going so here's a Jew working for the Canadian secret intelligence service harassing Jews to create anti-semitism and getting paid by the government to do it quite the thing from Hamish myself and to your Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your God's go with you.